Father, along with Paul, I would pray that the eyes, as he said to the church at Ephesus, of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, we are so grateful that you have worked in our lives, that you have looked down upon us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and through the power of your Spirit and through the, uh, the, the death of, of your Son, you have brought us to yourself and you have made us alive and given us eternal life. We were, uh, we were blind. We were not able to understand spiritual things. We were far from you. Our hearts were, were hard and, and cold and distant. But you initiated with us and you infused eternal life into us when you regenerated us by your spirit and and so now our lives are completely different our lives are completely changed we have a completely different way of looking at life things we didn't see before we see now uh, we we didn't used to see you at all and now we see you everywhere and we see your hand at work in our lives personally and throughout the world. So we are thankful that we are in your family. We are thankful that we have been uh, baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. And we are reminded that Jesus is head of the church. It's our desire to honor him. It's our desire to lift him up. It's our desire to declare his word. And it's our desire to live out that truth in our lives. We pray for each guy that's here. We've got guys dealing with uh, physical situations. They're, they're dealing with, uh, with a loss of health. And for so long, we just think it'll always be there. And then life changes. It's just part of the process. Uh, some guys are dealing with relational issues that are tearing them up inside and uh, quite frankly breaking their hearts others are here and there are great pressures in regard to business in regard to finances uh, what, what, whatever burdens we carry Lord we we bring them to you and you carry them for us you're mindful of where we are you, you know our hearts you know the pressures you know the concerns uh, you know the worries you, you know what we're facing, you know the anxiety. And we think of uh, the scriptures that we're, where we're told to cast all of our anxiety upon you because you care for us. You're, you're just not aware of us and you just don't know of us, but, but you care. You're, you're, 
You're very concerned. You have our well-being in mind. You've not forgotten us. You've, you've not abandoned us. You're for us. This I know, the psalmist says. This I know that God is for me. Encourage us with those words, Lord. As we open your word tonight, may it be sharp, may it be encouraging. If we need to be rebuked, rebuke us. If we need to be corrected, correct us. We'll trust your spirit to do that work and give us open hearts. Don't let us get defensive. Let us hear what you have to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. We have been using the umbrella idea this fall of events. There are events that occur in our lives. Uh, some events are planned on our calendars. Some events are unplanned. Uh, there are events that... Uh, that God has written down for us. That's why we spent several weeks on the whole Red Sea story and the whole Red Sea situation and the crisis that they were in. But there are other events that occur in our lives. And one of the events that happens to us, I would say on a fairly frequent basis, is, uh, and usually you wouldn't think of this under a heading of an event, but to me it's an event. Uh, it's, it's an event that shows up um, quite often, if we're to be honest. And it is a situation that happens in our lives when sin looks good and sin looks very inviting. Now that happens to us on a regular basis, sometimes more than others. But because we're believers and because we've been redeemed by Christ... And because, as Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ, because we're following Christ, we have an enemy who hates us because we love Christ. He hates you because he hates Christ. And we have now been adopted, and we're redeemed, and we're part of that family. And, and so we are in a war, and we're in a struggle, and we are in a fight. Uh, that's why Paul told Timothy to fight the good fight. Uh, this, this is a warfare situation. War has been declared, so there's going to be a struggle. There's going to be a battle. There's going to be uh, weapons of warfare that we have got to utilize in order to defend ourselves against the attacks of the enemy. And, and one of the things that the enemy does is that he works in our lives in such a way. And I need to say this. It's just not the enemy who works. But there's another factor at work here that we'll see in just a minute. But what he does, and what the forces of sin do, is that they work overtime, as we're going through life, to appeal to us in a way that is, um, well, let me put it this way. What appeals to this guy doesn't necessarily appeal to this guy. Uh, you have a temperament. You have a personality. Um, if, uh, if you're a guy that doesn't like confrontation, the enemy is aware of that. If you're a guy that doesn't mind confrontation, the enemy is aware of that. So keeping in mind the type of different individuals that we are, 
he will set up different scenarios in order to pull us in, in order to trap us, in, not unlike what you do when you go fishing. What you're trying to do when you go fishing is that you're trying to deceive. You're trying to ambush. You're trying to confuse. You're, you're trying to, uh, you're saying to the, to the fish, you're saying to the trout, peace, peace. But that's the last thing that's on your mind, man. You want a piece of the fish. You don't want P-E-A-C-E. So we think about what lure we think. And that's an interesting term, isn't it? A lure. <laughs> it really is an interesting term. How can I lure this fish in? Well, first of all, I don't want him to know I'm here. Secondly, I don't want him to feel threatened in any way, shape, or form. And, and the best bait and the best lures offer a promise. A promise that looks very, very good, is very, very enticing. And, and here's what gets them to take the bait, will offer multitudinous pleasures to the fish. We're talking fish now. Well, this is basically, guys, what the enemy is attempting to do with us. There is a difference between falling into sin and running into sin. There's a huge difference. Sometimes we get trapped. Uh, Galatians 6 says, uh, Brethren, if any of you are caught in any trespass, sometimes we sin and we, we didn't mean to. It, we, we really didn't. It wasn't, it wasn't intentional. You know, in the Scriptures, you've got... You've got intentional sin and you've got unintentional sin. You've got premeditated sin that someone's really, really thought about, and you've got sin that you didn't think about. We, you know the thing about us? We sin and we don't even know we're sinning a lot of times because there are presumptuous sins, there are hidden sins that the psalmist talked about in Psalm 19. Well, what I want to look at in 2 Kings tonight, there was an event in the life of a guy by the name of Gehazi. And this is an event not where he fell into sin. This is an event where this guy ran full speed, smack into sin, because he was lured in by the promise of multitudinous pleasures. Now, it doesn't begin with Gehazi. It begins with a guy by the name of Naaman. And Naaman is a significant man and an important man. 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram. King of Aram, uh, during this period of time, was periodically at, at war and at battle with the king of Israel. Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now that's an interesting phrase that I won't camp on. But this guy is not a believer. He's not of Israel. In, in fact, it says the Lord had given victory to Aram, which was a pagan nation. The man was also a valiant warrior, but here was the problem. He was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, 
I wish that my master were, were with the prophet who was in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. How would you like to get a letter like that? By the way, I've sent this guy, and he's got leprosy, and uh, I need you to cure him. Yeah, well, look, your response would be the same as the king. Verse 7. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. In other words, this, this other king's just doing this to start a problem, and we're going to go to battle again. I can't heal this guy. I can't. I mean, I, this is nuts. Verse 8. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious. And went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He, he, it, it really offended him. And he goes on to say, Hey, look at where I come from. We got better rivers. We got cleaner rivers. We, we got more scenic rivers than the Jordan River. And this guy wants me to dip in the Jordan River seven times? It was, it was a great offense to him. Uh, the end of 12 says, So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So reason prevailed. Verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. He was clean. You know what's interesting about the scriptures? I think a lot of us have an idea that miracles like this occurred all the time in the Bible. And in actuality, miracles like this occurred at different seasons throughout scripture. But there would be great, great periods of time where miracles were not being performed like this. Sometimes God works miraculously. Sometimes he doesn't. This is one of those periods under Elijah and under Elisha. So, verse 15. Naaman's going to go back to Elisha. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. He wants to give something. I mean, this guy came loaded with gold and silver and all these amazing clothes. Elisha said in verse 16, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I'll take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Now Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. As a little bit, he said, What's this all about? Well, maybe, and different commentators have different ideas. 
Perhaps the idea here is that he wants to take, he has to take some dirt from Israel. Because now he knows the one true God, and as he's going back to his culture, the idea is that perhaps he's going to use this dirt to put on his knees as he kneels in his culture, signifying he's kneeling to the one true God. It's not crystal clear, but it appears that's what's in his heart. Uh, Verse 19, Elisha says to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. All right, now here comes Gehazi. Now watch this. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Now, this is interesting. This is real interesting because what you got going on here is something called greed. What you've got going on here is something called uh, envy. What you've got something going on here, it would be what is known as coveting. And uh, I think coveting is part of the ten suggestions. Someone pointed out, it's not the ten suggestions, it's the ten commandments. Okay? Notice, if you will, it says, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought. He thought. That's very interesting. Um, the, the mind, hey guys, John Stott wrote a little book years and years ago called Your Mind Matters. The mind, in, in many uh, senses, is the playing field of spiritual battle. Uh, the, the mind would be part of the heart in Scripture. When you hear the heart being mentioned in Scripture, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart. The heart represents the whole man. Mind, will, emotions. So what happens is, you see, Gehazi, he gets this thought in his head. He says, I'll run after him and take something from him. Verse 21. Now watch, watch, watch this. Watch the slippery slope that happens. Because whenever, whenever we are lured by the idea of a benefit, an ill-gotten benefit, whenever we're lured by the promise of a pleasure, it's a very slippery, steep, downward slope that we find ourselves on. All right? Because watch what happens here. 21, so Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? He said, all is well. My master has sent me. Well, that's not quite the truth, is it? And, and in fact, it's not the truth at all. My, my, no, Elisha didn't send him. He came on his own. All right, watch this. All is well. My master has sent me saying, and he's going to go into this story. This guy, Gehazi, uh, I think this is a guy who didn't do real well in elementary school. I think this was a guy who today would have been um, diagnosed with ADD because he has such a vivid imagination. When I was in first grade in Mrs. Baker's class, you remember Mrs. Baker? When I was in Mrs. Baker's class, um, we always had... What, what do we call that? Was it sharing time? 
We had a sharing time most days, you know, a little 10 minutes. Well, every day I, I got up and shared. And every time I got up to share, I needed to top what I said the day before. It was kind of a pressure-filled situation. And it took Mrs. Baker probably about four days to figure out I was a pathological liar. <laughs> she had to talk to my folks. She had to talk to me. That's kind of what this guy's doing. Now watch this. All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, uh, here's why he sent me. Just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Oh, well, that's interesting. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, well, be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them the two of the servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house, his house. And he sent the men away back to Naaman, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere, which is a brilliant answer. Yes, I was, I was not here, but I was also nowhere. Uh, your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, See, here's the problem hanging around with a prophet. Here's the problem. Here's the problem when you are uh, when you want to when you want to be identified with the godly, but you're not godly. There's always a problem with that, and the problem is he's going to read him like a book. Verse 26, and he said to him, "Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes?" and olive groves, and vineyards, and sheep, and oxen, and male, and female servants. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So we went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. This is a little sobering. Well, yeah, I'm glad that's Old Testament. We, we live in a... We, we, we're New Testament Christians. Every once in a while I'll hear someone, some preacher, make a statement that what we need is a return to the book of Acts. And I've heard that for years. We need a return to the book of Acts. And what they mean is all the miraculous things that God did, all the powerful things that were done, all the... You know, we need that. We need that in the church today. Well, if you're going to return to the book of Acts, you got to take the whole book of Acts. In Acts 5, there was a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. And what they did was uh, the church was holding everything in common. If anybody had a need, they were selling what they had, and some people were selling property, and Barnabas sold a piece of property and gave it to meet needs. And uh, they had a piece of property, and they sold it, but they held back some for themselves. But uh, uh, Ananias walks into Peter and says, "Hey, because he wants to be associated with the godly. He wants to be thought of as Barnabas. So he says, hey, here's our offering. You know, it's the whole thing. And Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Sucker drops dead. And they you know, got by the heels and pulled the sucker out. 
Well, a little bit later, here comes uh, Sapphira. She'd been down at La Madeline and, uh, <laughs> with some gals. and So she comes in, doesn't have a clue, and gives him the same story. I pull her out. So when I hear guys saying, we need to return to the book of Acts, I mean, is that really? I mean, really? And you know, that, you need to think about that. There's some pluses and there's some minuses. If, if you're a liar, there, there's, there could be a real downside to that equation. We think, well, well, well you know, that's, that's an exception. Well, read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they're abusing the Lord's table. And they're eating of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And, and Paul says, some of you are sick because of that. And some of you sleep, which is a metaphor for you died. Because house, uh, judgment begins with the household of God. Interesting. See, that'll put a little fear in you, won't you? Won't it? And, and see, we don't really like that. But it's what happened. We, you know what happens to us? We get so used to grace and we get so used to mercy. Oh, and by the way, when God handled those people like that, God was not unjust. He was not merciful, but he was not unjust. You following that? You can't indict him because he's a just God. But God is abundant in loving kindness, and he's abundant in mercy towards us. Now, here's where I'm going with this. What happened to... What, what happened to Gehazi, and what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, and what happened, people get lured in. There, there was a difference between falling into sin and running into sin. And we were in a battle. If you're serious about your faith, if you're serious about Jesus Christ, it's going to be a rough ride. Because what the goal is, and what the whole point is, is that the Lord is working in your life and in my life to conform us into the image of Christ. So that involves a process. And that involves a, a process where he's taking us uh, from the elementary things to the mature things. He, he wants us to grow. He wants us to develop. I, I uh, knew of a couple uh, years ago uh, when I was in seminary. And he was in seminary. And they were excited to have their first baby. And that Baby boy, I mean, they were thrilled. And they would take that baby boy in for the physicals and for the checkups. And it wasn't too long before they got very, very concerned because that little kid wasn't growing. I mean, he wasn't growing near to what he should be. And they had a little boy, and I forget the technical term, but they, they two normal, physically people, and they had a little boy that was a dwarf. And, and you know, so there are all kinds of issues now and all that. But see, in the same thing, in the spiritual realm... When, when someone's not growing, you've got a problem. Now, here's something we need to understand. If, if we are going to mature, if we're going to grow, we're going to be battling every day as believers. I want you to turn with me over to the book of Romans. I want you to turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. Because here's what happens in our lives. The... the the Lord does a magnificent work in our lives. He has died for us. He has given us life. 
He's given us a new heart. He's opened our blind eyes. The amazing thing about the gospel, and when you really understand the gospel, along with John Newton, you just can't say grace. You've got to say it's amazing grace, because that's what it is. The fact that when Jesus went to the cross, and he died for the sins of the world, and he died for your sins, when Jesus went to the cross, how many of your sins were future? All of them. Now, this is an amazing thing, because you weren't even born, you haven't even sinned. But on the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. So what that means to me, experientially today, is that I stand here, uh, Jesus died for my past sins, and we would all agree with that. But Jesus has also died for the sins that I commit today, and even later this evening. Jesus has already died and paid for the sins that I'll commit in three weeks. Or in six months, or in a year. Because Jesus paid it all, past, present, and future. And, and I grew up in a denomination, they didn't teach that. Because the reason they didn't teach that, and as a result, they would often give altar calls, and whenever they did, I'd make my way down to the front. Because I knew I was a sinner. And I had this sense that, well, I, I know I'm forgiven for my past, but I got a whole new fresh set of stuff, and if the Lord would return... I wouldn't go to be with the Lord. That's, that's, that's what I thought. That's what I heard. That's what I was taught. But you see, Jesus paid it all. Jesus didn't pay it 90%. Now, one of the things that concerns those people that teach that is, well, if you teach that Jesus has already paid for all your sin, and Jesus has already paid for the sins you haven't even committed, you're just going to go out and live like hell. That's how they think. Look at Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Yes. No. No, that's not how we do it. Listen, when you understand, when you begin to get a grip on what Jesus did on the cross for you, that's not a license in your heart to go out and just sin and sin and take advantage of it. Out of gratitude for what Jesus has done, you don't want to do that. You want to honor Him. You want to live in thanksgiving to Him. You, in gratitude. So this is what Paul's saying. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so the grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now I want to work my way through some of these passages because I want to show you the battle that we're in. And we're in a battle. Because you see, all of us in this room, do, do we sometimes fall in sin? It's unintentional? Sure, all the time. Uh, Sometimes I offend somebody, sometimes I sin against someone, and quite frankly, I'm so insensitive, I don't even know I've done it. You've done it as well. But there are other times when it's a whole different scenario, and sin, the lure of sin, the promise of sin, the pleasure of sin, and we're not talking about stepping, we're talking about stepping after it, and pursuing it, and running into it, just like Gehazi did. All right, watch this. Verse 5, for if we, have, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self, our old man, what we were before we came to Christ, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Before Jesus came into our hearts, into our lives, uh, sin was our master. It dominated us. It ran our lives. But Christ came into our lives, and he has cut it down. He's cut it off at the knees, 
And now Christ is in charge of our lives. And we're new creatures with new hearts. We've been regenerated by the Spirit of God. So we are no longer slaves to sin. We have been liberated. Now watch this. 11, verse 11 of 6. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin. Think yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So did you used to use your tongue to um, criticize and cut down your wife and just rip her to shreds? All right. Now that Christ is in your life, you don't want to keep presenting that tongue, that member, as a vessel of unrighteousness. You want to present it to the Lord. Does this not make sense? That's what James is talking about. Verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin... You became slaves of righteousness. Okay, now, now let's go to Romans 7. Because Romans 7, you guys are listening to this and you're saying, yeah, okay, I'm not a slave to sin. But you know what? Uh, see, I don't know what to make of that because, you know, I still struggle with sin. That's exactly right. You do, and so do I. Um, note, if you would, verse 21 of chapter 7. This, and then I'm going to go back and read some out of 7. But the core of 7 is verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. This is called indwelling sin. Sin used to be my master. Christ has come into my life, given me a new heart, given me eternal life. Is sin eradicated? Is sin gone? Is sin obliterated in my life? No. Paul says, I find then this principle that evil is present within me. There is still sin within me. It's not my master, but it's still there. All right. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to 14. Because this is, Paul's going to describe the battle. Paul's going to describe the struggle. He's going to describe the war. 14 of, verse, of chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. And everybody said, Amen. That's the struggle. So how many times a day have you kicked yourself? See, that's why we say, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Verse 15, verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. I want to do it, but I don't do it. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I don't want. I love this guy. Aren't you grateful? For the honesty here, this is the Apostle Paul. Sometimes we think we'll meet somebody and they walk with the Lord a long time, and they're pretty impressive, and we think they got it together. You know what? They don't have it together. 
Everybody is struggling. There used, and there still is, I was going to say there used to be a teaching. There still is a teaching called sinless perfectionism. And sinless perfectionism teaches, um, and it comes basically, it comes out of Methodism and, and, and John Wesley and the Arminian Wesleyanism, Wesleyan holiness movement. But the idea basically is that uh, a Christian could get to a point of sinless perfectionism. And I've told you this story in here before. A lady came up to Spurgeon and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I want you to know I haven't sinned in 12 years. And he said, oh, you must be very proud. She said, I am. <laughs> she never got it. She never got it. <laughs> because First John, flip over to First John real quick. First John kind of kills that whole deal. If you look at First John 1, verse 8, which says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You've got sin, and I've got sin. The thing I want to do, I don't do. This is the dilemma. Verse 20, I'm back in 7. Paul says, But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So we're back to 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So I can't get rid of this indwelling sin as a Christian. It's still there. But, are you guys still with me? See, this is the struggle. And here's what happens. Sometimes, see if this rings true with you. Sometimes the struggle, you get so tired of struggling, and you get so tired of not doing what you want to do and you intend to do, but you don't do it and you screw up. And sometimes you get so frustrated, you just think, you know, why do I keep doing this? I mean, is it worth doing? Sometimes in a really weak moment, you say, I, want, I mean, do I really know the Lord? And see, this is where the enemy comes in. He's the accuser of the brethren. And he starts pounding us, and he starts beating on us, and he starts accusing us. Well, why do you say you're a Christian? You've been doing this. I mean, you, there's been no growth in your life. You're doing the same stuff you were doing 10 years ago. See, he's the accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. There's a guy by the name of John Owen. Great theologian. Uh, great theologian. I, I think he's got 24 volumes or 28 volumes still in print. If you've got one volume still in print 300 years later, you're pretty good. Um, I've written a few books, and most of them you can find at your local dumpster. <laughs> Owen has got like 24 volumes, and they're still printing them. They're still printing them. Let me tell you something about John Owen. He is hard to read. Uh, he's not brief. He's not succinct. He's not humorous. He's not funny. He's not light. Uh, he doesn't give you a chuckle. He's hard to read. He says in 25 sentences what he could have said in three. But for some reason he doesn't. But they're still selling his stuff. Why are they selling his stuff? Because it's, it's prime rib. It's prime rib. And the thing about Owen you can read, at least I can. I can read about I can read about three pages 
And then I got to get up and walk around. Because I just can't take anymore. I can't assimilate it. Uh, I just can't do it. And most people can't. But this guy was a surgeon. They used to call the Puritans, they'd call them the physicians of the soul. And one of the things that John Owen would write about, and he's got several volumes on temptation. Uh, He's got a volume on, catch this, the mortification of sin. Now some of you guys are thinking, I should have stayed home tonight. (laughs) I mean, I thought this was going to be interesting. So what's the mortification of sin? How many of you guys have ever heard the term, the mortification of sin? I mean, if you haven't, it's fine. Some of you have. We don't use that term a lot. So where do you get that? Well, go to Romans 8. Okay? Now, I'm going to go to verse 13. I'm going to get there in a minute, okay? And I'm going to show you them. I'm going to go ahead and read 13, then I'm going to go back. Now, now I want you to stay with me, because I want to show you the process that we go through. Now, follow this. To keep us from running into sin. And, and, And I'll tell you, I want to tell you guys something. I think a lot about this, and I'll tell you why I think a lot about it. Uh... I, I, I've, been a, I've been a Christian since I was seven years old. And, and I'm, I'm now pushing 34. <laughs> Almost twice. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I turned 58 this week. And, and by the way, I appreciate the present. <laughs> that was touching to me. And uh, as soon as they come, I'll send you a thank you note. Anyway, forget that. Anyway. Uh, and I'm not holding my breath. But, but I've been a Christian for a long time. You know what kind of concerns me? Is that I've been a Christian a long time. And you start thinking you're okay. And you start thinking, yeah, I get this stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I get it. And what happens is you get lured you get lured into dropping your guard. You get lured into thinking you're in good shape. You get lured into thinking, I'd never do something like that. But see, sin is still dwelling within me. And I still have the potential to do that. And I don't ever want, I'll be honest with you guys, I don't ever want to lose that fear. Because when you lose the fear, you're in deep yogurt. Your, your carcass is going to be hanging off a hook somewhere. Oh, by the way, when you struggle, like Paul mentions in Romans 7, and you get on yourself and say, you know, why do I do this? And I don't want to do it, but why do I do it? And Man, you'd think by now I'd be further down the road, and you get on yourself and you start turning on yourself and all that. You know what John Owen says? He'll take about 10 pages to say this. And I'll just give it to you in about three sentences. You know what one says? If you struggle and you're frustrated and you're angry and you don't feel like you're making any progress and it bothers you, that's a sign you're a Christian. That's a sign the Spirit of God is at work in your life. You're concerned about it. You want to grow. You want to mature. That's an evidence that Christ is in your life. The guys Christ is in their life, they're not struggling with that. They don't give a rip. Right? So that ought to be an encouragement that the grace of God is at work in your life. All right? I know this is kind of heavy tonight. 
Uh, but this is the struggle we're in, all right? Now, now let's, let's go to Romans 8, verse 6. Watch this. He says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Okay, now let's jump down to 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He says in 8, those in the flesh can't please God. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anybody does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit's in your life. Now, we get confused on this flesh, this flesh and spirit stuff. Okay, so what's, what's the flesh? Well, he's not talking about this stuff here, you see. He's not talking about this stuff you need to see the surgeon about and get that turkey thing removed. He's not talking about that. When he's talking about the flesh, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about indwelling sin. He's talking about desires that lure us the wrong way. Flip over to Galatians. Let me show you. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to tie this up in a minute, but I've got to walk you through this process to kind of show you how it works. So you know what happens is in church, um, you hear all these terms, but a lot of times... I mean, I heard it in my life, you know, walk in the Spirit, walk, walk by the Spirit, you know, be filled with the Spirit. Okay, okay, well, great. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Don't walk in the flesh, walk in the Spirit. Well, how do I know I'm walking in the... Do you ever wonder about this stuff? Well, how do I know I'm walking in the Spirit? <clears throat> Sorry, I had to find my mic. Uh, how do I know I'm walking in the Spirit? And what does that mean, and what does it look like? All right. Look at Galatians... Uh, look at 5.16. Uh, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. So look at The flesh is that which is against the Spirit of God. That's how you know what the flesh is. And the Spirit against the flesh. For those who are in opposition to one another, for these who are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. This is the war. This is the battle that we're in every day of our lives. And you know what? It gets exhausting. And it gets tiring. And you get weary. But this is the battle and you never check out of the battle. You never get furlough on this thing. You're always in it. Now look at verse 18. But if you were led by the Spirit, you were not under the law. Now here's, watch the flesh being defined. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. Did, did uh, Hazy have a little bit of envying going on? Oh, I think so, yeah. Drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice, those who practice, not those who fall into them, but those who practice. There's a difference between falling into sin and running into it. There's a difference between falling in and stumbling into sin and practicing it. The guy who practices sin never worries about struggling with sin because he's practicing it. It's his normal M.O. So once again, that guy's probably not even a believer. Now, in contrast to that, let's talk about the Spirit. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Hey, how come I can't be more patient? I pray for it. And I try to be calm, 
and I try to relax, but why do I get so irritable? I mean, I'll actually pray and say, Lord, help me not to be irritable. And then you know what happens? The thing I want to do, I don't do. See, this is what I'm after. And this is where the battle comes in. Patience, kindness, kindness. I wish irritability was in here. Don't you? I mean, just, just throw one in that will encourage me here. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. See, this is what we're struggling to attain to. All right, now, okay. So here's what I want to know. This thing of the flesh versus the spirit, all this. Now, would you flip over to Ephesians 5 with me? Oh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I got to go back to Romans 7. Okay, I got, almost got ahead of myself. Uh, Romans 8, rather. Thanks. Go back to Romans 8, then we'll go to Ephesians 5. So you got, that, you got the fact we're in a struggle and we got a war going on, okay? So then, brethren, I'm in 8.12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We don't have to live that way. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The idea of the mortification of sin is right out of this verse. When you mortify sin, watch this, you kill it. You kill it. John Owen had a saying. And the saying was this. <clears throat> and it's kind of Shakespearean because he lived during that guy's time. The saying was, be killing sin, or sin will kill you. <coughs> Sorry, guys. Drainage. Thanks, guy. Anybody got a Zyrtec on them? In all seriousness. You sure that's a Zyrtec? What's that? No. Yeah, I don't, I don't need that. This is a Sucretz. I'm going to Zyrtec, the allergy thing, stops drainage. Thanks. I'll take this, too. Because I get this little thing going. This tickles my throat, and I'll be in it all night. Thank you. You want to pass that back to him? Thanks a lot. Um, excuse me, guys. I can just feel it coming on. The mortification of sin is killing sin. It's killing it. It's going after it. Oh, uh, have you guys seen the stuff on the drought going on in Georgia? Have you seen the pictures of Lake Lanier? Let me tell you, that's a gorgeous lake if you've been up there. It's north of Atlanta. Beautiful, gorgeous lake, beautiful homes. And what do they got? If you've seen the pictures, I mean, that sucker is down to nothing. And how many days do they have left? I mean, it's in the 70s now. Because that's, that's Atlanta's drinking water. That's pumped down Alabama. I mean, they got 70 more day, days, and they're out of water in Lake Lanier. It's serious. I mean, it's big time serious. Here's the deal with sin. We've got sin, indwelling sin. We've got two options. We can feed it, or we can starve it. We can, uh, uh, how did Lake Lanier drop so low? Well, there's a drought. All right, so there's a drought. But see, Lake Lanier, you've got all kinds of streams and rivers coming down, and those suckers feed into Lake Lanier. If you dry up the streams and the rivers and you dry up the rainfall, you're drying up Lake Lanier. That's how 
we handle indwelling sin. We dry it up. We don't turn on the tap. We want to starve it. And we want to dry it up. We don't want to feed it. We don't want to encourage it. So, so sin in our lives, we don't excuse it. We don't rationalize it. We, we kill it. You got to go after it. Now, is this making any sense? And, 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 and these old guys, they, they were big on killing sin. You say, yeah, but sin will always be there. Yeah, I know it'll always be there, but you still go after it and kill it. Because if you're not killing it, it's growing. Okay, now go to Ephesians 5. What I want to know is, how, okay, the, the, you know, we've been talking about this and struggling, right? I need a little hope and I need a little help. How do I go about, how do I go about not walking in the flesh but attempting to live in the Spirit. Because let me tell you something. If you're, not, if, if you're not working out your salvation with fear and trembling, um, if you're not in the battle, you're going to have some problems. I want to read something to you before I do the Ephesians 5 stuff. Um, let me see if I can find this. Um, it's on 33. Um, a couple guys, Kelly Capick and Justin Taylor, have just taken three classic works by John Owen, and they've summarized them and cleaned it up a little bit and taken the difficult English out. And in their introduction, they say a couple things, and it's worth reading. True and lasting resistance to sin comes not through willpower and self-improvement, but through the Spirit who empowers believers with the knowledge and love of God. Throughout his writings, Owen is always quick to highlight the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit made you, life, made you alive in Christ, right? He brought you to Christ. Well, he's not leaving you alone. He's continuing that life in your life. Not only does the Spirit of God bring life to those who are dead in sin, thus causing a new birth, but he also continues the work of God in the renewing of that person in the image of Christ. Now, then he quotes from a guy named John Murray, who was around this past century. I want you to hear what Murray says. God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, so that the conjunction of co or coordination of both produced the required result. God works in us, and we also work, but the relation is that because God works, we work. In other words, we work in the battle. Why do we work? Because God's working in us. This isn't some self-help thing. Now, Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18 can be very confusing because Ephesians 5.18 basically says, and see, I don't know about you guys, if this ever confused you, or maybe you just got it from day one. But a lot of this stuff, we throw these terms around, and I want to know, what does it mean and how do you do it? Ephesians 5.18 says, and don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, you know what I want to know? How does it, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You got, and you've got all kinds of different ideas on what it means to be filled with the Spirit, right? You can get at arguments with other Christians and, you know. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? When it talks about the filling of the Spirit here, the idea, when I see the word filled here, it means control. That's what it means, is control. Watch this. Don't get drunk with wine. Why? Because when you're drunk with wine, you're controlled by wine. Right? When you're controlled by wine, you act like an idiot. When you are controlled by wine, you want to fight some guy 
<clears throat> that could put you in the pavement in 12 seconds. Uh, when you're controlled by wine, you can't drive. Don't be controlled by wine, but be controlled by the Spirit. Right. Well, how do I know when I'm controlled by the Spirit? Watch this. He's going to give us the evidences. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You ever encourage somebody with a psalm? You ever encourage somebody with something from the Word of God? That's a sign of being filled with the Spirit. He goes on, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You ever just drive down the road and it's just you? And you're just singing like a song, you know? I'll tell you what I sing all the time. I go, how great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. That's all I know. Are there other words in that song? I don't know what they are, but I know that. I sing it all the time. Because really, that's all I need. How great is our God. And then I start thinking about how great he is. That's a sign of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So when I'm thankful, see Israel got in trouble because they were always complaining, right? They were always murmuring. But when I'm thankful, that's a sign of being filled with the Spirit. You ever just, you ever just stop and say, you know, Lord, gosh, I'm so blessed. You're filled with the Spirit. You're controlled by the Spirit. Isn't this practical? He says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. When you're in submission to somebody, you have an attitude of humility, that's a sign of being controlled by the Spirit. Now watch this. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. How can a wife follow the leadership of her husband? Only by the control of the Holy Spirit. Then he says in 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How do you love your wife like that? How in the world can you do that? It's impossible in the flesh. In the flesh, it's impossible. But when you're controlled by the Spirit, you love her as Christ loves the church. See, he's getting into families now. He's getting into relationship. So you always think, oh, the filling of the Spirit, some guy speaking in tongues and doing this and all that. Hey, forget that stuff. He wants me filled in the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, in my house, in my home, in my relationships. Now he's going to say, look at... Um, 6-1, because it's the same context. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. This is right. How do you honor your father and mother? By being controlled by the Spirit. Verse 4, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. These are all evidences of being filled with the Spirit of God and controlled by the Spirit. Now, real quick, because Lou flashed me the five-minute sign, go to Colossians 3. Just flip over a couple books to your right. Colossians 3.16 says this. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Okay, good. I'm all for that. Now, here's my question. How do I know when the word of Christ is richly dwelling within me? All right, here are the evidences. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, where did I hear that? Ephesians 5. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Hmm. Wasn't that in Ephesians 5? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks. Wasn't that in Ephesians 5? Watch this. Next verse. Next verse. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Next verse. Children, be obedient to your parents. 21. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. That's wild. You know what's wild about that? 
It's starting to hit me what this means. When I'm battling, when I'm warring, you know, I want to mortify sin. All right, how does this work? Let me tell you how it works. To be controlled by this, the controlling of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, and letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you are the same thing. Because the evidences are the same. It's just two sides of the same coin. On one side of the coin, it's be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. Well, how does the Spirit of God control me? By the Word of Christ richly dwelling within me. The Word and the Spirit always work together. So how is it that I can have that attitude and fight off sin, and instead of cutting my wife, instead of being harsh, how is it that, that I encourage her and let my speech be seasoned with salt, as the Scriptures says. How do I do that? By, it starts to come out the wrong way, but the Spirit of God wants to control me through the Word of God. That's why Psalm 119 says, and I'm blanking, but it'll come to me in just a second. Psalm 119 says, Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You see how that works? You say, wait a minute, isn't there another piece to this? Yeah, there is. Because, see, when I'm starting to go the wrong way, and the Spirit of God wants to control me through the principle of the Word of God, which I know, there's one piece left that has to be done. I need to obey the Word of God. You say, see, that's, that's pretty fundamental. Uh, yeah. But isn't that our struggle? There's the battle, is to obey the Word, which we know. we got notes in our Bible. Man, we got books on our shelves. But to, to obey it. To obey it. You say, well, Steve, I don't quite have it. Join the club. But you know what, guys? Let's not quit struggling. Because when we quit struggling with it, sin's going to get bigger, the lake's going to rise, it's going to get more powerful and have more influence on our lives. Let's dry it up. Is this making sense? And don't lose heart. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for forgiveness. I thank you that even in 2 Kings 8, there's a pretty good indicator when that king came and had a conversation with Gehazi that you had healed Gehazi of the leprosy. Just as you healed Naaman. And it doesn't state it clearly, but that seems to be the evidence. And that would just make sense, because that's the kind of God you are. That's mercy. That's grace. That's forgiveness. It's given to us in full measure. And we glory in it, even as we battle. Even as we battle, we love the grace of God. And we embrace it. Give us courage to keep fighting the good fight, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.